But we do thank God for the power and presence of his spirit and the chance that we have to be here together to recognize his presence and to uh, celebrate what Christ has done for us to make his presence available to us through his spirit. And that is going to be our focus this morning, talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the, the mission or vision statement of First Baptist Church, that it is guided by prayer, committed by faith, empowered by God's Spirit, and working together to see to share Jesus Christ. Today we are on that, that empowered by the Spirit, the power and presence of God's Spirit in our lives. What does that mean? What does it look like? What does it, is it for? And I'll tell you that this message is going to flow uh, kind of into the next one. So we're, we're not going to go through all of the things on the Holy Spirit. I actually sent Kent Wagner, I know that he and his Sunday school did a, a study on the Holy Spirit last year, I believe it was, or it was a while ago. And uh, I sent him a text message saying, preaching on the Holy Spirit is the worst. It is the worst because there's no concise way to do it. Every time you pull on one thread, it opens up another wormhole that you need to go down. And so you end up with all of these loose ends. And no matter how you do it, you come to the end either feeling like you've just rushed through it all or and handled it in a pro- with just too, too surface level or you've taken way too much time. And as those who attend on a regular basis, I have no problem taking way too much time. So when I'm looking at it and thinking this message would be too long, that's a long message. Right? Had to remind myself, we don't live in the global south. We do use watches here. So we had to condense things down a little bit, and uh, we'll we'll be looking at this morning. We do want to make one more announcement. You you noticed the holy hot tub, but you may also have noticed this flower here at the front. And we love celebrating um, new births. We love celebrating new life, whether it be new life in Christ or physical new life. And so this rose represents the birth of a new grandchild here in the church. This represents uh, Ellen Ann. Did I say that right? Is Suzanne here? Oh, good. So if I mispronounced it, she doesn't, no one knows. Um, Ellen Ann, what's her name? Vivian, Viviana Maria. Hey, I'll just read what's written, folks. I'm just telling you. If it's not on the notes, the Holy Spirit doesn't move, I read what's there. Say it again. Viviana Maria Baum, and so we celebrate that birth this week, so congratulations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. (laughs) Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for bringing us together in your house and allowing us to worship you. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of uh, struggles and mistakes, God, that you can still work and move. Lord, that it's not my words that make the difference, but the movement of your spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would work and move in our midst today. And God, that you would be honored and glorified and that you would speak to us in clear ways that we can understand and order that we might adjust our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to consider with me for a moment this morning what it must have been like for the disciples during the time of Jesus' life. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I'm sure that most of us have as you read the Gospels and you see these things to to think about what it must have been like to be part of Jesus' posse walking around the earth for three years seeing all of the things that are recorded in Scripture happening in real time. 
Like that you weren't just a reader trying to imagine the story later, but you were a participant in real time. Can you imagine that? Like, I, and I, I'm, I'm one who believes that the, the Bible's recording is not um, in whole. And what I mean by that is not that the Bible doesn't give us everything that we need. What I believe that is the Bible gives us everything we need and nothing more. So I believe that in, 30, in the three years and the 30 years prior, that there probably were a great many things that happened in the life of Jesus that would be of interest to us beyond the Cliff's Notes that we have. That this is probably a condensed down version that gives us the highlights so that we understand. So you think about that three years as Jesus is walking around. Even think about what it says in the text, right? Like it'll say that, that, that he goes into a town and all of the sick in town, all of the demon possessed, anybody that had any kind of a trouble or a worry, along with anybody that wanted to see, would flock to Jesus to where there were no more sick persons when he left. Like, they don't even articulate all of the healings. We have several where, you know, like the, how could you not record Jesus, the blind man coming and saying, hey, I'm sick and I'm blind. And Jesus going, hey, I got you. <sighs> Makes him out. Hey, let me just put this, this on your eyes. And, and the, puts the spit mud on the guy's eyes. That's just me. I'm not being flippant. That's what the Bible says. Guy goes to the river, washes off Jesus' spit mud, and he can see again. Like, you got to record that, Right? Or the guy that can't hear, and so Jesus is like, I got you. How'd that work? I can hear. You know, no one cares if you got a wet willy, if you can hear afterwards. You, you see these things. You see Jesus asking, you know, like you got to record that. Jesus going and, and asking the, the layman, hey, do you want to be made well? Like, how do you not record that? Like, it sounds like a dumb question from Jesus. Do you want to be wait? Like, the guy's been laying by the pool for years. Of course he wants to be made well. But he's like, well, does he? And then Jesus heals this guy, picks him up, he walks. Or the guy where, where Jesus is in the house and the, the friends are like, hey, we can't get through the crowd. So they just bust through the roof and lower the guy down on a rope. You have to record that. But there were probably more things. I mean, miracles followed Jesus wherever he went. And, and, and so you've got to imagine that, that these things the disciples saw were beyond our comprehension. I mean, we can read about it, we can imagine it, but, but really, do we really understand? Now, all of the miracles, and, and then you move past that to all of the teachings. Like you and I have to read the scriptures, which, which are inspired by God. They have all that we need for life and godliness to understand God's promises. I don't mean to... to, to diminish the returns of the word of God. But again, it's different reading the written word of God than watching the living word of God, right? It's different. It's a different thing altogether, reading about someone else's experience in a blog post or on a Facebook post and seeing a picture than it is actually being on the beach, right? We would agree that the nuances of the experience itself outweigh the, the, the highlights afterwards, but here are the disciples. They're hearing Jesus talk in real life, real person. They're able to ask him questions, follow-up questions. Hey, you said this. Did you mean this? What did you mean by this? And they're able to, get, they're get, able to have Jesus qualify and explain exactly what he means by what they're saying. They, they get corrected when they're wrong, right? And we, we may look at that and say, man, that would stink. But would it? Like, who would, who would be better to tell you that you're wrong than the perfect son of God? With literally anybody else in life, you could say, well, you're not perfect. With Jesus, it's like, well, I, I kind of am. 
You know, so you have this challenging and encouragement that's happening in real life. When you're messing up, Jesus being able to pick you up like Peter and restoring him to the ministry. And, and Peter didn't have to wonder, am I good enough for Jesus? Does Jesus still love me? Because Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? The question isn't whether or not I love you. You know that. For God so loved the world. But Peter, do you love me? And Jesus restores Peter. We don't have that. Like the, the questions of, you know, does God still love me? Can God still use me? That's gone away if Jesus says, hey, I still want to use you. Are you a messed up fool? Yes, you are. Do you, do you work on behalf of Satan sometimes and need to get back in line? Absolutely. But do I still want you on my team? I sure do. Like, it would be awesome to have that interaction, to have the divine Son of God, God made flesh, the human manifestation of Almighty God right there with us. It's hard to compete with that. It's hard to imagine that. But you know what's even harder to imagine is what happens when that stops. I think that we might actually be in a better position in that case I don't care what anyone says, it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved and loved at all. I think I'd just rather have never loved. We can have that debate later, but, but I think having that experience with Jesus and then having to deal with not having it would be exceedingly difficult. But Jesus, God Almighty, in his omnipotence and his omniscience, had a plan. And what we see in John chapters 14 through 16 is a dialogue by Jesus right before the end of his life, before he is violently taken from his followers and crucified, Jesus gives them some encouragement that though the difficulty is going to come, he is going to empower them through the continued presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at several different passages here in this discourse between John 14 and John 16 to see what the Holy Spirit is all about from the mouth of Jesus himself and how maybe that should help or influence and impact the way that we live our lives. Look with me to start at John chapter 14 and we're going to start in verses 15 through 17. Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So we see this revelation that Jesus is making here, that, that he's about to send his Holy Spirit. He, Jesus promised to send help from the Father. Jesus promised to send help from the Father. I think this is an important thing because we often think of Jesus as being Emmanuel, God with us, which is correct, right? The Bible is, is, is fairly unambiguous about that. It's clear that that. You will have a son, you're going to call him Jesus, and he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to be with his people on the earth. And we often think that that stops with Jesus, right? Because Jesus, it's his name. He is Emmanuel. That's true. But is it really about the name or is it about the promise? Is, is it about the person of Jesus Christ or about 
the perpetuation of what God has said he would do. I would like to submit to you that it's the latter. That when God promised that Emmanuel was going to come, that God was going to be with us, that he was going to be an ever-present help in time of trouble, that it was no longer going to be as it had been in the Old Testament, where the Spirit came and went at times, and where, where, where spirits filled in at times, and we were overwhelmed with the Spirit, but then the Spirit was gone, that God, God no longer takes his Spirit from us, that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, as the text tell us, tells us, and that Emmanuel, the promise of God with us, us continues through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a continuation of that promise of God. Now again, this whole account takes, back, takes place, if you flip back and just look, we're not going to read it, but you see in, in John chapter 13 that all of this discourse is happening during what we know as the Last Supper in the upper room. We have to understand that because it's important, it's germane to the text. That as Jesus is telling his disciples about this another helper that is about to come, he is saying this because he is in, he is in hours, just the countdown to zero hour of the, the, the troops coming, storming in and arresting Jesus and taking him by force and, and Christ standing before the Sanhedrin being falsely accused and Christ ultimately going to the cross. All of that mess is only hours away. The countdown to the proverbial apocalypse for this group of disciples is waning. So Jesus promises, as Jesus looks forward and has already warned them of, of his crucifixion, we, we know in John there are three different occasions where Jesus tells them about the passion. He promises them that I am going to be arrested. I am going to be mistreated by leaders of our own people. I am going to be mistreated by the Roman authorities. I am going to be crucified and cruelly put to death. Christ has already told them that. They know this, this promise is there. And now we're coming into fulfillment. And Jesus promises them to ask a fa the Father to send another like him to be with those who love and obey him forever. Just as Jesus ushered in the presence of God with man at his birth, the Holy Spirit would continue the promise of God with man upon Jesus' departure, upon his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Now we need to notice what's going on here because this is not just any spirit. Jesus isn't simply saying that God will send in a backup or a fill-in. This isn't just a placeholder, right? This isn't just another. Like if you, if you look at my, my Instagram or my Twitter, it says another, or my email even, my personal email is another.jmyers. Now, it's not another.jmyers because I'm such a great J. Myers. You know why it's another.jmyers? Because there are 50 billion Jeremy S. Myerses in the world, and being J. Myers 2789-1645 just seemed a little too long. So rather than doing that, I'm like, look, I'm just another. Now, that... That's great for me. I'm just another dude. There's nothing that special about me. But when it comes to the Spirit of God, this is not another in that same sense. That it's like, well, there's just a ton of them and just pick one to throw in there. That's not what he's saying. The word another in this sense, in, in this text, is actually filling uh, something more, saying something more than what we take in the English. It, it's another of the same kind. Another of the same kind, another of the same substance, another of the same source. It's easy to miss for us, and this feels kind of like a, 
a, a rabbit trail of sort, but I, I don't think it is. Because it's easy to miss in this text that, that it reveals the Trinity. It, it reveals that, that there are three, but there are one. It's much like when Christ is baptized, right? And, and Christ goes into the water and the Son, Christ the Son, right? He goes into the water, God made flesh, and he comes up. And when he comes up, what happens? But a, a dove lights on his arm, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus the Christ is standing there, and the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove is sitting on Christ, there, there is a voice from heaven saying, Behold, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You have all three. Now, it's important for us to understand and to recognize that all three are present at the same time. Because we make a mistake when we think that God just fills different offices. I'm not here to argue theology this morning, but I do have a big problem with what they call oneness theology. And what that means is that there is one God that just fills different offices. It's also known as modalism, that, that, that there are, in fact, there is just one God, and he just, he, he just is either God the Spirit, or he's God the Son, or he's God the Father, but he's not all of them at once. Well, the Bible itself seems to disagree with that. And even here, Jesus gives location. He says, look, I am going to leave, and I am going to go back to my Father in heaven. So the Father and the Son together in a place. And when I am with the Father, I'm going to ask the Father to send from us another like us, that is the Spirit, and the Spirit will live in you. We've got all three. It isn't simply that, that God functions in different modes or office. This passage reveals that all of the persons of the Trinity are distinct persons, all existing eternally, fulfilling different roles, but composed of the same substance or essence. Now, there are lots of different examples we could use that, to, to try to explain this, right? Like, like water. We could talk about water that, that can exist in, in three different forms, it can be water, or it can be a solid as ice, or it can be a gas. It's, it's three different things, but, but they're all of the same essence. But the problem with that is that you, again, are at modalism, because it can't be all three at the same time. It is one or the other. But it, it does reveal to, a part, to us a part of the Holy Spirit, or the three-leaf clover, where there are three leaves that are all part of the same stem. They are all part of the same plant. But again, the, you, you, it falls short because it's all the three things in the same place at the same time. No matter what illustration we use, they all fall, fall short of capturing the form and function of the Holy Trinity. But what is important for us today is to remember and understand this. That God Almighty is Father, Son, and spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. One, but three. Now, you may say, that explanation didn't help me at all. I am just as confused now as I was when I started. Welcome to the club. If I had a great, succinct way of explaining that, I'm just going to tell you, I wouldn't be preaching at First Baptist Church this morning. I would be touring the world on a book tour, making a lot of money. But I can't explain it because I'm not that smart and wiser men have tried. I don't care. We're not going to lose our focus on that. The focus and what we need to understand is that when Christ promises to send another, it's not something that is less than. It is something that is different but the same as. Equal unto. This new helper, the spirit of truth, would come from God and would be with and in those who believe forever, helping them to obey. 
Now, who is the Spirit? What is, what is the Spirit revealed as here in the text? You can look in the text, and, and there's probably, as I read it, you probably heard the word I used and said, whoa, that's not the word that's used in mine. The actual word that is used in the Greek is the word paraclete. I want everybody to say that word with me. Paraclete. Now, I want to be clear and make sure you didn't say the wrong word. This is not the bright, colorful bird that you put in a cage to keep you calm and help you feel peaceful at home. It is not a parakeet. It is a paracleet, like, like a paracletes that you wear to play football. Okay? Everybody say it again. Paracleet. Now, that's important. I don't, I, I, we need to know that word because that word is one of those Greek words that we come across from time to time that is too robust for English to describe it. It's one of those words that, that no matter what English word that we use, to translate that word, we lose something. We sacrifice something in the process. And so if you look at different translations, a bunch of them use different words. The NIV translate the word paraclete as the advocate. The advocate. The ESV translate it as the, the helper. The King James Version translates it as counselor. And you know what's interesting about the word counselor as it's used in the King James? is that we, in our modern use of English, misunderstand that word twice. Not only is it insignificant or insubstantial uh, as, as far as explaining the true depth of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, we, as we understand the word counselor in our day, is not the same as the writers of the King James in the 1600s would have understood the word. For us, a counselor is a guide. A counselor is someone that gives us advice. A counselor is someone who calms our fears. And maybe that there's a little bit of that. But the word counselor, in the time when the King James was written, was one who made another brave. One who gave someone courage. One who made someone strong. A counselor. If this were a multiple test, then, and we were to have these words, advocate, helper, counselor, etc., we were to have those words and we were to say, okay, this is a multiple, chest, multiple choice test. Which word is, is the, the right answer? It's one of those infuriating tests where you, you can't actually pick the quote-unquote right answer because they're all right answers and you have to do your best to pick the best answer. And in this case, the, answer, the right answer, the best answer is D, all of the above and some. All of the above. The, the Holy Spirit fills all of these things. Parakletos, one called or sent to assist another, one who pleads the cause of another, one present to render services. So then, if we were to create a definition of who the Holy Spirit is based upon what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit is the heaven-sent advocate that helps believers be brave and stand strong in the world. The Holy Spirit is the heaven-sent advocate that helps believers be brave and stand strong in the world. Now, something that we also have to understand through these verses here in, in 15 through 17 is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just walk with us. You see, that is actually one place where we might say, and, and I hesitate to say this because someone surely will be offended. This is one area where we actually get an upgrade on Jesus. Now, don't be offended. But Jesus walked with the disciples, right? 
the Holy Spirit now would live in the disciples. Was an ever-present help, consistently there with them, always available, no matter where they were or what was going on. In many evangelical traditions, even in our own, we speak of asking Jesus into our heart. Right? That is, that is the seminal moment of salvation for us. We, we take the walk to the altar and, and we pray, asking Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to come into our hearts and to guide us into the future. And, and I don't lament that prayer. I think that that's a good way to start the salvific process. But I also think it's kind of short-sighted and it creates a situation where we think the deal is done after we've prayed the prayer. We, we've prayed, and, and it creates a situation where... Unwittingly, we create a, a model where we focus too much on the future. I mean, you could grab one of those Baptist hymnals in front of you and flip through it. Now, and you could, I would ask you, tell me how many of those songs are one experiential, saying that they point back to when Jesus saved me, or two are eschatological, meaning they point to the future, saying, when do I get to go to heaven to be with Jesus again? I hear it all the time. Oh, I can't wait till I get to see Jesus face to face and be with him and to be in God's presence. And, and I get that. I don't mean to demean that, but it is short-sighted. It misses the fact that we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to be in God's presence. That as followers of Jesus, G the spirit of the, the very living God lives within us. We don't have to wait to experience the power and presence of God. He's here. I also have to tell you, I don't love a lot of the songs that we sing about the Holy Spirit. I like that song we did because it sounds good, but I, I think it's spiritually inaccurate. And here's why. Because we're praying, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Love the song, and I understand the intent of the author. But it's actually inaccurate. You know why? Because the Spirit doesn't have to fall fresh. The Spirit's already there. Or another contemporary version where, where it says... Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Well, no, duh. You know, God's Spirit's everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. So I, I wonder if God doesn't hear us singing that song and saying, no, 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 you're welcome here. I was waiting. I already done been here. And I struggle with that. We, we have this idea, and it creates this idea in our minds that God is here and then God is gone. Or, or that, that God abandons us when, 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 we, when we turn and fall or do the wrong thing. And the fact is that that is inaccurate. The Bible tells us here, and I could go on and on about passage. This is one of those areas where I could pull the thread and we could keep going. Like when Paul says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our salvation. Or the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal of the power and presence of Christ in our lives. We could look at this over and over and over again. So then the, the truth is, and here it says the Holy Spirit would be with us forever. Now, just so you know that, that the Greek word for forever here means forever. Without end. I, I, I struggle with the idea that, that we, we, we look and we think that God would abdicate and would leave us alone. That God would abandon us. The truth is that never in history has it been more true that God will never leave us nor forsake us than in the New Testament following the coming of the Holy Spirit. The problem then isn't that the Spirit has left us and we need to invite the Spirit back. You know what the problem is? The problem is our, our failure to observe and to be aware. It is an awareness issue. 
Oh, the Spirit, was, the Spirit is there. Perhaps you're sitting in here today and you'd say, you know what? I, I've been lost in sin and I've been struggling and I feel just far from God. I, I want to tell you today, brother or sister, that feeling is on you. And it is a lie from the devil. Because the Spirit of God, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, has not abandoned you. It is you that are failing to be attentive to his power and presence and his desire to lead and live with you. The issue is not the spirit. God's spirit is not fickle. God knows who we are, right? Like we can look at Romans, and I'm still running down this rabbit trail because I think it's so important, that, that Christ died for us. When? While we were still sinners. So if Christ comes to us while we are sinners, the Holy Spirit comes to us while we are sinners, it's not our sin, the, the, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ doesn't wear off. The issue then in our relationship with God is not a God problem, it's an us problem. It's our failure to be observant. It's our failure to be attentive. It is our failure to be obedient. The fact is that God is there. God has not failed you. God has not abandoned you. We need to restore our attentiveness. We don't need to pray that the Spirit would fall fresh, but that we would open our eyes anew. And sure, maybe that we would have a fresh experience and remembrance of the power and presence of the Spirit, but the Spirit, brothers and sisters, has not left you. Jesus asks, Jesus promised to send help from the Father, the paraclete, the advocate, the helper, helper, the counselor, and more. So what is it that this Holy Spirit, this helper, what is it that the Spirit does for us according to Jesus as he continues? Well, according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit testifies to us and through us. Right? We see that if we, if we flip over and we look in John chapter 15... Verse 26 says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who gives, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this, in verse 1 of chapter 16, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. The Holy Spirit then is the advocate that advocates for us and to us to believe and live according to the truth. Now, advocate is one of those words that can function as either a, a noun or a verb, and for the Holy Spirit, is a, it is both. The Holy Spirit is the advocate that advocates, describes who he is and what the Spirit does. We flip back to chapter 14 again, and we look at verses 23 to 27, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, and I do not give to you as the world give, gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. 
Jesus tells the disciples that this advocate that is going to advocate is going to come and be in them to remind them and to teach them. The Spirit is going to keep in the forefront of their minds the the, the reality of what Christ has told them and what he expects and, and is going to guide them in living those things out and is going to teach them in the situations they're facing how they should live. The Spirit then advocates for obedience in our lives and our actions by reminding us of the truth of God's word. Jesus started this discussion back in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus declares, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It comes from Thomas asking, hey, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. You say you're going, why can't we go with you? And, and, and we can't know how to get there if you don't tell us the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am eternal life. Our faith then is built upon our understanding, acceptance, and application of the truth. And it is the Spirit of God that creates the connection between our hearts and the Word of God. It is the Spirit of God that makes this book more than just a book. It's the Spirit of God that makes these words more than just archaic, ancient words written by random, remembered men And years gone by, and makes them for us the very words of God, the promises of God, and the truth of God for us that is relevant for today, in every day, in every situation. Now, it may not be a direct apples to apples situation where it tells us exactly what's going on, but the truth of God has principles and understanding that can guide us in anything that we face. I believe that. That through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that there is no situation or struggle that this book cannot help us face. It's what we know as the quote-unquote still small voice. I don't know how this works in your mind, but whenever I think of the Holy Spirit, especially when I was younger, I used to think of the cartoons, right? You can't help but go to the idea of the Jiminy Cricket character, right? The little cricket coming along with you and telling you, ah, you shouldn't do that. Right? The, the cricket that, that is supposed to, like, who decided? I want to know who the author was that decided a cricket was the, the wise sage of the world. That, that a cricket that doesn't have the sense to get out of the way of my foot is the wisest of all creatures. We've talked about this briefly before. The cricket does make a good conscience because is there a no more annoying creature in the world? Right? Once you hear it, you can't unhear it, and it is there until you respond and do something about it. So I guess that, that is part of where that comes from. So you think of the cricket, you think of that cartoon, or maybe for you, the, the image that it conjures is the angel on the shoulder, that, that God's spirit is this, this angel that comes on your shoulder, and when you're trying to make a decision, you're like, oh man, I don't know what I should do, boop, there's an angel that shows up on your shoulders like, you shouldn't do that, that's bad. Right? But then we have a problem because it's not just the good angel that shows up. Then you've got the bad angel. Boop. Pops on the other shoulders like, you should do that. It's going to be really fun. I don't know about you, but an angel on my shoulder isn't going to do much for me. And I don't need a devil on my shoulder. I am enough of a devil when it comes down to it enough on my own. Someone just amend that. Like... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume in that moment that you weren't amening about me, you were amening about yourself, <laughs> right? 
I do appreciate the amens, and I am sorry for calling you out. But it was one of those moments where I'm like, I'm enough of a devil myself. And people in the congregation are like, yes, finally. Let's pray and go home. Holy Spirit's moving today. <laughs> yeah, thanks, brother. But we got the still, small voice, this, this Holy Spirit. But it's not a still, small voice. It may be speaking to us quietly from the inner recesses of our heart. But, but the Spirit is anything but small. The Spirit is anything but still. It is the Spirit of the very living God. The source of all truth. The, the Spirit can guide us in truth because it is the very source and inspiration of truth. It is the foundation of our faith and belief. And those who have accepted Jesus as Savior, if we think about it, can more than likely call, recall moments where that voice has spoken or that Spirit has moved. We can't always explain it. But moments where something in you was just not right. And something in you was telling you, don't go down that path. Something in you was calling you back from that ledge saying, let's not start this process again. Or maybe it's the other way. Something in you, you just can't help it, is calling you forward. Something is pushing you on. You, you maybe don't want to go forward, but, but the Spirit is moving I'll tell you, I feel it. On Sunday mornings when, when we get to do baptisms, I feel the Spirit. I'll, I'll tell you honestly. I'm actually reading a book. This is totally tertiary. But I'm reading a book on exorcism and demon possession right now. And it's horrifying. But it's from a priest's perspective. But I'm going to tell you that when I come in on mornings when, or when we are getting ready for mornings when we're going to ha have a baptism, that that night before is the worst night of sleep for me. I told our young ladies this morning, I asked them, I said, are you nervous? And they're like, yeah. And I said, I'm going to confess to you, I, I am too. I am too. And there is the presence of the Spirit of God in this place when I come in on Sunday mornings when we get to baptize. And, and I know that there are other spirits pushing against that and trying to slow and stop that. But, but praise God, the Spirit within me is greater than the Spirit that is in the world. And God, that same spirit lives in you. The same spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and is empowering you and is bringing your souls to life. Yes, that is a forward, faith forward promise that, that points to the eschatological reality of when the end of your life comes, the spirit will lift you up physically and bring you back to life. But the fact is that the spirit is trying to bring life about in and through you right now, today, in every situation. The Spirit is, complete, is continually speaking. Again, it, it amazes me how often people approach me after sermons to share how uh, they felt I was preaching directly at them. First, it's interesting when people come up to me after a sermon where I just feel like I laid a complete egg. Where when I get done, I just want to quit. I don't want to do it anymore because I just don't think I have it in me. And I get done and someone will come up to me and be like, oh, that was the best sermon you ever preached. And that's helpful, but at the same time, it's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. 
Or someone will come up to me after a sermon and will say, man, it just felt like that sermon was pointed right at me. It's as if you were in my house this week and you heard the thing I said to my kids. Or it's as if you were at work and you knew the thing I was thinking about doing. Or, or, or you were in the counseling session and you knew the thing that I was struggling with. And, and I will tell you, there are very rare occurrences where I hear or know of something that's going on in the church. And in those moments, I have preached at you. So there are times where you think, man, is Jeremy preaching at me? And the answer is, yes, he is. But you know what is more than often the case? Is that when I am preaching at you, it's not you that will hear what I'm saying. Someone else that I wasn't preaching at all, or some, that person actually will come to me after the sermon and say, man, there was someone in the church this morning that really needed to hear that. And I'm like, yeah, there was. Let's start from the top again while we're at it. <laughs> but they'll say there was someone in the church that really needed to hear that. And, and sure enough, someone will come to me and say, man, that just so hit me right where I'm at. I needed to hear that today. And I'm thinking to myself, that's great, but that wasn't for you. That was for them. And, and, and I'll tell you this, I, I, I don't, often don't know what I'm doing a lot of times. At least that's how I feel. And, and the good news is I don't have to. Because, yes, I, I will offer the best that I can in and of my own strength. And I believe that God does give us gifts. Another rabbit trail for the Holy Spirit that we'll save for later. That, that God has gifted us in certain ways. And for me, all I've got is talking. I do nothing else well. I talk and I write the end. And so praise God, God has given me those gifts and he uses them, but I still feel inadequate. But the good news is I don't have to be adequate because it's the spirit within me and the spirit within you that speaks and makes the impact. It is not my best laid plans and my best written sermons that ultimately make a difference in your lives. It is the movement of the Holy Spirit and it is that still small voice that is speaking to you as you're hearing the preaching of the word. I appreciate that. The Holy Spirit testifies to us and through us. And, and as the Spirit of truth, again, testifies the truth of Jesus to us, it does enable us to testify to others. John 15. Again, verses 26 and 27, it says that the advocate will come whom I send to the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, and he will testify about me. We like to stop there. The Holy Spirit is telling me what I need to do and talking to me so that I can live my life, but it doesn't stop there. Why does the Spirit testify to us? And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that was just for the disciples because they were with him from the beginning. You don't get off that easy. It is the job of each of us to share Jesus Christ. This is where this message could go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to put a pin in that one and not go too far down that path because we're going to talk about that next week with sharing Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that the Spirit testifies to us in order that we might testify to the world. And the disciples understood the assignment. I love that throughout the book of Acts, and I'll reference this again next week without apology, because it's one of my favorite things that I noticed when we did a study about Acts here at the church. Look through Acts and see how many times throughout the, the, the book of Acts the disciples say, and we are his witnesses. 
That that was the intent. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the other ends of the world. And they understood that that was the assignment, that they were to be witnesses. That, that yes, that they're missionaries. And when they're missionaries, what's the point of being a missionary? That I, I am a witness to Jesus Christ. And that they were preachers and Bible scholars. And if they were doing that, why were they doing that? So that they could witness and testify to who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and if they were deacons and they were to serve and they were table waiters, why were they to do that? To testify and witness to who Jesus was and what he's done. And I don't care where you are, where you're sitting, whether you're a, a pediatrician, a podiatrist, whether you work at a local restaurant, whether you are a teacher or a teacher's aide, whether you work in law enforcement, where you are retired or at home, whether you're just a kid going to school. Brothers and sisters, hear me, and I cannot emphasize this enough, and we'll hit it again next week. You are called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. All of us, there is no age limit. You do not age in, you do not age out. All disciples are called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, why don't we, though? Why don't we share the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, you know, the number one reason I hear all the time for why people don't share Jesus Christ, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. What, what should I say? What do I say to people about you? How do I share my faith with Jesus? I don't know what to say. Number one reason people say that they don't, they don't talk about their faith. But again, let me share the dirty little secret of preaching. Most of us don't know what to say either. That is the hardest thing for me every week. And my wife will tell you that every Monday it results in me coming downstairs and lamenting, man, I have to write another article. I have no idea what to say. Now some of you may say, well, why do you even write the articles? Well, I've started by writing them for in here. But those articles, I, I get an email every week from someone out in the community who says, hey, you don't know me and I really don't know you, but I read your articles every week and this one really hits. This week I got one from another pastor who says, I normally just scroll, scroll past your stuff, but for whatever reason, the headline this week caught me and it hit me right where I was. Again, I don't, I don't have a lot of skills, but I can write some stuff and I can talk. And I don't have any idea what to say. When I start writing those messages, I often bring them in to Jean and have her check them out. And I'm like, hey, when you read this, make sure it doesn't sound stupid. Because I had no idea what to say. And so I just stream a thought this thing, and I hope it landed well. Most of the time, and I, and I start working on the sermon. I may even know where I'm going. And I sit and I look at the Bible. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say this Sunday. What am I supposed to do? And were it not for the Spirit of God testifying and working in through me, this would be utter gibberish. If it were not for the Spirit speaking in you, the same Spirit that spoke to me, that the, I don't think that any of these messages would connect. Sure, you might hear some of the stories and be entertained for a moment, but listen, there is better entertainment on your TV. So we pray, and I step up here every Sunday not knowing what to, I've preached thousands of times and wrote, written hundreds of, of articles, and I still feel woefully unprepared and underqualified for what I do every time I open my mouth. We prepare the best we can for the moment when it comes, but in the end, we trust the Holy Spirit will provide us with the words and will work through us. And the same principle that applies to me applies to you. Now, you may not speak as much or in front of as large of crowds, but you are called to testify. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have accepted his gift of salvation, if you have had an encounter with the risen Lord through the truth of Scripture, and you have understood the way, the truth, and the life, you are a witness for Jesus Christ.
and the grace you've received, you should be sharing. The good news is the Holy Spirit doesn't stop by giving us the information and understanding. The Holy Spirit emboldens us to testify to what we've believed and experienced. Finally, the Holy Spirit gives us strength to stand firm in the faith. John 16, 1 and following, it says, All this I have told you so that you will not pass away, fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak to you on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So we see Jesus carrying on. And Jesus, inherent in what Jesus says about the coming of the Holy Spirit, is a warning. And the warning is this, it will not always be easy following Jesus. The path, the straight and narrow, will not always be smooth. We could go on and Jesus continues and and ends in 1633 where he says that in the world you will have trouble. It's one of my favorite, least favorite promises in the Bible. We're going to have problems. It's not always going to be an easy road to hoe. And the fact is that that it, it lies, this promise and all of this discourse on the Holy Spirit is surrounded by trouble. If we go back, we realize that Jesus warns the disciples, hey, the world hates me, and if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Don't think that you're going to get out of this without issues. And then he ends it by saying, in the world, you're going to have trouble. And in the middle of all that, he says, you're going to have trouble. And then interspersed throughout it, he says, you're going to have trouble, but it's going to be okay because I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I am leaving you, and that's going to be a struggle, but it's okay because I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I am going to the Father, but it's okay because Emmanuel, God will still be with you. And God will still strengthen you. We need to know that when the struggle sets in, we must listen all the more to the voice of the Holy Spirit and seek to follow his lead. You know, I, I, I think we read this and we tend to make two mistakes. One, we tend to, to go with the hysteria of the modern world. Unpopular hot take. I believe the cries of the persecution of the modern church in America are wildly overblown. Do we have difficulties Yes, we do. Are there people that don't understand us and are pushing against us? Absolutely. But are we persecuted? Absolutely not. Could it come? Sure. 
But, but our, if we look at the immediate horizon and we forecast what's going on, does it look like it's really all what the media is often saying or what we want to, to rail about? The fact is, it is not. Much of, and, and in fact, much of the hostility that we as Christians face has been hard-earned. We've worked for that mess. You know how we've done it? Is we see passages like this and many others, and we, we take it th- this idea of the hostility, and we make those that are going to be hostile our enemies. But you realize that in this text, that is not what Jesus says. Jesus' concern is not that we focus on those that are others that are outside and that we stand with equal hostility against them. As a fact, matter of fact, we can look over and over at texts where Jesus says that, that we are to pray for those who persecute us and we are to love those who hurt us. That we are to give and not ask for anything in return. And we can go for, to Paul where it says that we are not to return evil for evil but to return good for evil. That we are to live the sacrificial love of Jesus. See, the problem that I have with texts like this and with others is, is the way we twist them to other the world, to, to make them our enemies that we need to, to have hostility in return against. That is not the truth of Scripture. The Spirit does not come to empower us so we can destroy our enemies with the, the means of the world. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us so that we can love our enemies. In spite of ourselves and in spite of them, so that we might undo our enemies through the the love of Jesus Christ. They will know you are my followers by your love. Not by your political power, not by your political party, not not by your posts on on Facebook, not by your well-stated arguments. They will know that you are my followers by your love. I think we need to stop listening to the words of the world. We need to stop basing our actions and our understanding based upon the nightly news or the New York Times or whatever paper you happen to like. And instead, let's focus on the truth of God's word and the movement of the Spirit as he guides us in the truth. Stop stop knee-jerking to the lies of the world and focus on the truth of God's word. Now, I, I want to be clear about this, and I needed to give that caveat before I went on. Because we do, in fact, live in a world that marginalizes the truth. And the truth is this. The truth is always under attack. We have never lived in a time in our world after the devil introduced the first temptation. We have never lived in a time when the words, did God really say, have not been whispered into the ears of the people of God. We've never lived in a time where truth has not been under attack. You know, as much as I'd love for it to be as clear and apparent in today, and some of the times it is, the the reality is that it's the subtle things that make a difference, the things that seem to make sense. We live in a world that encourages us to follow our own hearts, to trust our own feelings. But the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can trust it? We are told that that we are to live our own truth, that truth is purely experiential, that truth is what I make it, that I I can determine by my own volitional choice what and who I am. But the Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God, that we are created with purpose, that we are created with dignity, that we are created with a plan that God would have for us to follow. 
our society claims that the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, which is incredibly ironic. That the only truth that is always true, that is unquestionable, is that there is no truth, which then makes the initial truth untrue. We recognize the danger in these assertions when they're clearly stated, but they're much harder to see when they come from sources we trust or when they create a license for us to do whatever we want, whenever we want. See, you and I are really bad judges of the truth in our own strength because you and I will ultimately opt for what is ever best for us, whatever feels best to us, whatever we want, whatever is going to bring about what we think will be the best result in our lives. The Holy Spirit and the Father, the, the Son, call us to, to move beyond that, that there, there, is, there is only one way. There's only one way to the Father, and that's Jesus. There's only one absolute unflinching source of truth, and that is Jesus There's only one way to eternal life and ultimate fulfillment, and that is Jesus. And the way we stay connected, the way that we continue to follow Jesus is through the the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The only way we stand strong is that when we are empowered by the Spirit. The only way that that our prayers are effective is that when, when we are filled with and we are paying attention to the Spirit. The only way that we can be truly committed by faith is through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, all the things that surround being empowered by the Spirit depend on being empowered by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to advocate to us the truth of God's word, to counsel us to be brave, and to help us stand strong in the faith through his power and presence within us. May we be empowered by his presence. May we be emboldened by his love and his grace. And may we be attentive as he speaks to us the truth of God's word and as we share it with the world around us. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth of your word, and I thank you so much for the challenges that it contains. Lord, may we consistently seek your truth. Lord, may we consistently listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, your spirit within us. May we adapt and adjust our ways to what you say, rather than seeking for you to adjust and adapt to ours. Lord, give us soft hearts. Give us attentive hearts. Embolden us and empower us to stand strong in your truth in the ways that you have called us. And Lord, as we testify, may you touch the hearts of those who experience our presence and who hear our words, that they too might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.